Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Disruptive Innovation Podcast, the place where we keep you informed about emerging technologies, innovation, and the global trends that are changing the world of business. I'm your host, Nikisa Mayodza, and with me always, Mike Grandinetti. Happy to be here with you today. A lot to cover, so let's get into it. Um, I think, Mike, to me, this week sounds like chaos week, uh, or at least right now, it seems to be within the space around disruption, uh, there's just a lot of chaos. And, and obviously, I'm talking here about WeWork, SoftBank. Um, I think I'd like to get into that a little bit, talk a little bit about what you're what you're thinking, what you're seeing. We've covered WeWork and talked about, you know, just what it means for, uh, if you think about the, the space in general, because uh, there's a lot of good stuff, but this is obviously, you know, not good news and, and just a, a bad sign all over. That's great. And, and, and Nikisa, really excited to talk about this. So it's it's a week of chaos politically as we have the whistleblower scandal just just swirling around in our nation's capital. But it's really been it's really been a year of chaos um, punctuated by, you know, certainly we work. Um, essentially canceling their IPO plans. And I think it's it's really worthy of a, of a deep dive today. So there's no question, there's chaos. And I think, you know, now that we've got nine episodes in our rearview mirror, probably a perfect time to sort of, you know, provide some context in terms of where we've been mm-hmm. and where we're going. Nine episodes in, we're not, not bad. Yeah. <laughs> so if you think about how we entered this year, right? It was a, a year of euphoria. It was the year of the unicorn. And there was all of this excitement about all of these big IPOs that were in the pipeline. And boy, has have things turned out rather differently than what people expected. And, you know, as Winston Churchill famously said, those who do not study history are doomed to repeat it. And this has the shades of the dot-com implosion all around it. You'd think we'd have learned something, right? This has happened before. And to your point, I guess no one's reading, right? No one is yeah. paying attention. It's it's really remarkable to me. Um, so, you know, let's, for, for the benefit of our listeners, right, over the last 20 years, um, you know, we've seen the amount of company formation in Silicon Valley explode. We've seen the amount of capital flowing into the Valley explode mm-hmm. in ways that were unimaginable before. Right. So Alan Greenspan had a great phrase, a rational exuberance. Mm-hmm. Right. And yes. I think we've seen a rational exuberance on steroids recently. But here's what's troubling to me. Right. I, I've been a, a serial tech entrepreneur for the better part of my entire life. Mm-hmm. And when I started doing this back in the early 90s, it was, you know, it was a relatively small group of us that were for a lot to a large part focused on making the world a better place right it was a kind of an esoteric pursuit at the time and when you think about some of the great entrepreneurs of the day including bill hewlett and dave packard mm-hmm. and and you know some of the folks that were in silicon valley at that time or steve jobs or bill gates right yep. there are always going to be oversized personalities in the world of entrepreneurship but i do believe there was more of a purity of intent yeah and I think we're now at a point where growth for growth's sake seems to have really become quite an issue. And so when you look at some of the consequences of that, we see Uber down 30% mm-hmm. from its its IPO. We see WeWork just an absolute catastrophic, you know, ending 
to what most of us understood to be an incredibly overvalued, overhyped company. But when you dig in and you look at the lack of corporate governance today in the Ubers, in the WeWorks, mm -hmm. right? Or you see that even Peloton is down a significant percent from its IPO. Yeah. One of the things that troubles me the most is Lyft because Lyft was founded by people that I thought to be the good guys. Yeah. But I think that, you know, just this last week, and you can relate because you and I first met with through the Rutgers program. Yep. I'm getting a, a, a ride, a hail a lift uh, back to Newark Airport. And, and earlier in the week, something very unusual was happening. I was using Lyft to get to the campus from my hotel. And normally it's a two or three minute wait. The wait was 20 to 25 minutes each morning. Wow. And when I asked the drivers what's going on, the message was they're they're losing so much money driving that you're seeing a significant amount of attrition that it's no longer an attractive gig. Yes, yeah, so, they, they've changed a bunch of the models in terms of how drivers get paid, and 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 uh, and obviously it doesn't help when the press you know is talking about all these harassment suits and all these things that to your point lifted covered up. Absolutely. So so as the driver is taking me back to Newark, and we're getting into you know what's happening. And he's a very, you know, very articulate, very clearly well-informed guy. Mm -hmm. And he said, if he ever had a chance to meet the founders of Lyft, the question he would ask them is, why do you hate us so much? And so to wow. me, that was a remarkable thing because Lyft always, the founders of Lyft started out sort of what I would say on the good side of the ledger, well, right? Very well, socially they, conscious guys, but- They were the anti-Uber. They were the anti-Uber, but like politics corrupts so many well-intentioned people I just see so many people getting sucked into the vortex and it's very disappointing to see how much Lyft has shifted its culture and its set of values. So it's a real significant time of reflection, I think, for all of us who live in the world of innovation, who have come into this world because we really do want to improve the world. We really want to make a contribution. There's so many areas that need innovation around environment and, and you know, transportation and right. all the things that we struggle with. But it's a time of reflection, I think. And, you know, Silicon Valley gets it. Um, there's been, not, not surprisingly, Silicon Valley, they're going to capitalize on everything. And now there's a whole bunch of startups that are to help you find a therapist. Right. Okay. <laughs> so leave it to Silicon Valley to capitalize on its own angst. Right. And of course, you know, there's a lot of questions around the privacy of data with when you have all these online platforms and you're doing a lot of online therapy. But there's no question we've really reached, I think, an inflection point where we need to take stock of what innovation is for, how it should be conducted. And I think we've seen some pretty egregious examples over the last several years. Theranos, of course, being yeah. an extreme example, kind of the Enron of our era. Yeah. But even the ones that we've mentioned, right? Where were the adults? Where were the directors? Why do you need, if you're an adult and a professional, why do you need having people sit on your shoulders to do the right thing? Why isn't it just a naturally occurring act that I'm an adult, I'm the founder of a company, investors have entrusted a lot of capital under my stewardship. I've got thousands of employees or tens of thousands. You know, my job is to, you know, take care of this business. Well, do you think that's that's a function of, uh, is, you know, because I think I wonder about this, you know, is it is it the mentality that's coming from the fact that there's, a, there's so much bloat and so much capital investment, right, that everybody gets euphoric around that capital, 
completely lose this sense of responsibility, uh, you know, because it with with Uber and even with WeWork. I mean, if you think about um, one article was that SoftBank needed twenty four a twenty four billion dollar valuation to break even, right? right? Yeah. So if 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 you are a company that and you don't and you have leadership that has moral compasses. And you've got people throwing money at you. I mean, it, it really does become that that's that's seductive, I guess. Uh, and, you know, I mean, what do you think is a, is, is attributing the, to these these massive failures in, in leadership and also just in the product at the end? Original valuations tanking once these companies IPO. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I wish it was something other than human nature. But I think, you know, unfortunately, money does con- continue to corrupt it's it's more difficult to accept that when you've got people like Alan Neumann, Adam Neumann saying, you know, we, we want to raise the level of consciousness of the world or Travis Kalanick, the the, the ousted CEO and founder of, of, you know, Uber talking about, you know, replacing car ownership and making the world a, a better place and, and being more environmentally friendly. So that hypocrisy makes it that much harder to swallow, right? But I think to your primary point, it's no different than what happened during the dot-com era. You, right. when, when, when too much capital appears on the scene, I don't care if it's in politics or art Absolutely. or technology, a lot of people have um, money issues and they're too easily corrupted and influenced by it. So when you look at what happened, and, and there's a lot of voices out there that are saying that the you know, the public market provides a lot of discipline and that companies are waiting way too long to go public. And as a result of that, right, when you, when you, in, when you take on tens of billions of venture capital infusion, as WeWork has, as Lyft has, as, as Uber has, um, and you don't have very active VC investors on your board because they're not about that. That's not how they roll. They're not former entrepreneurs. They're finance guys. They've just given these executives way too much autonomy. And, you know, it's like a kid that gets away with something at home. You know, they keep pushing the boundaries and, okay, it's okay for me to, you know, sell uh, my own personal interest for $6 million back to my company because- I've gotten away with everything else I've done. No one's ever slapped me on the hand. So it's it's really quite sad because it reflects negatively on the entire entrepreneurial class. And the vast majority of entrepreneurs are incredibly well-intentioned, hardworking people. But of course, they're not the ones that the press is writing about. You know, so there's no question that, you know, Silicon Valley has been complicit in this. Um, they've been ignoring the the notion that there's been a bubble for a long time. Right, because to achieve a twenty billion dollar, twenty four billion dollar valuation is is such a rarity, such a black swan event, and then to expect that, you know, and and to believe that not not only you're going to have one, you're going to have many of them in your portfolio at the same time, is delusional. Yeah, so I was reading another article that was talking about you know SoftBank at this point, uh, every one in ten uh, investment activity, one in ten investment event across the globe within the VC space in 2018, they were involved in one in 10, right? 10% of the entire VC space. So it makes me think that, I mean, obviously they're hedging their bets, but just throwing, you know, casting the die wide. Yeah. But I think about uh, where companies, and and this was something you and I talked about uh, um, when, you know, before we went on on the air, there are companies out there that actually are, um, would be able to do way more with that $24 billion, right? You think about the auto industry, and we were talking about how, you know, the, there are industries out there where this type of infusion of capital 
would be incredibly valuable to pushing the narrative uh, and actually right. picking up on the idealistic view of what do we do to lower the emissions and those types of things. I mean, so there's a part of me that would love to tease on that and talk a little bit about that because I think that's a there there are clearly there are the good actors and the bad actors get the most uh, amount of press. But there's 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 a lot of opportunities for us to think about you know who's doing it right. And where are the industries where that capital would go a lot, lo- a lot further? That's great. So maybe good time to take a break. And then when we come back from that, let's dig into the, you know, go bigger, go home, growth at all costs that we've covered. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the far more rational and critically important kinds of companies and innovations that are going to be good for the planet that would benefit greatly, to your point, from more capital infusion. Fantastic. I like the sound of that. Uh, Let's take a break and we'll be right back. This week's topics are brought to you by Rutgers University and its leading disruptive innovation certificate program. At Rutgers, we bring together industry thought leaders and top academic faculty to help you develop your understanding of a range of topics and skills to proficiently navigate the turbulent environment and emerge with a competitive advantage. For more information and to enroll in the leading disruptive innovation program, visit li.rutgers.edu. We're back. Uh, Really great to start to the conversation, Mike. Um, uh, I think that we can talk about the auto industry and figure out, you know, what, what are they doing right or places that other industries that are doing this right? What, what, what do you think? Yeah. So with, you know, the auto industry, again, with, with this major strike at General Motors, mm-hmm. it's brought a lot of light to this major transition that the industry is going through. And I posted something last night on LinkedIn, which, you know, uh, reflected a chart from Morgan Stanley, mm-hmm. looking at the adoption of electric vehicles, um, and, and showing America, disappointingly, but not surprisingly, well behind <laughs> China and Europe. Aren't we dead last, actually? Yeah, we're dead last, but <laughs> that's the way we roll these days when it comes to the environment. But what I think there's a couple of very important things, right? There's no question that we need to invest heavily in electric vehicles for the benefit of the planet, right? Mm-hmm. It's critical that we do it. The challenge is that we've taken way too long. We've been addicted to fossil fuels for a long, long time. And we should have really started acting on this in the 1970s during the major oil crisis Mm -hmm. and the oil embargo, but we didn't. And so now we find ourselves 50, 60 years later in a crisis. And the challenge is on the one hand is that electric cars are far less complex. So the number of moving parts is far fewer. The amount of time to assemble a car is far less. And so Morgan Stanley is estimating that about 3 million auto workers will lose their jobs, you know, those that have been building combustion engine vehicles. Right. And, you know, this past couple of weeks, GM has shut down four of their major plants because they don't want to make any more investments in property, plant, and equipment for the old style vehicles. So this is an example where it's absolutely the right thing for Germany and for the U.S. and for, you know, Asian manufacturers to be making these kinds of investments. Yep. Um, and unfortunately, there's a remarkable amount of dislocation that is going to happen to a lot of hardworking, you know, working class families. And now the question becomes, could some of that money have been used to retrain these people you know, to work in the subsystem suppliers and the battery manufacturers and all of the people that create the electric vehicles of the future. 
Yeah, and, and actually, I think that's a that's a really important point, right? So other countries have decided that they're going to insource. Uh, you know, talking about uh, BMW and Daimler companies like that, they're actually bringing that work in and doing the retraining efforts. And I, I feel like that's actually a, a pretty important topic, right? The idea that if we really were preparing for this the right way, we'd be focusing on how do you create um, other systems or industries that are a um, connected to the electrical, you know, the the EV. Uh, manufacturing production? How do we start training people that maybe if they're building combustion engines, uh, you retrain them so that instead they become the technicians who fix these vehicles, right? Absolutely. They're going to be these these autonomous fleets. They're going to be these electro- electric vehicles that are coming online. Who's actually going to service them? So if we don't put those things into, into place and start training people now, right. what happens to that, to that working class, uh, you know, p- population of worker? And what happens to the economy if those folks don't have jobs? You know, what happens then? Right. No, it's a great point. And I mean, you know, you and I have talked, I've spent a lot of time in Scandinavia and mm-hmm. the Scandinavians get this right. And they, they are very willing to invest in retraining their workforce, right? This is not something that the government just sits back and says, oh, sorry, um, you know, you're going to have to figure it out on your own. Yeah. They, they are very, very committed to funding training. So that when one industry loses its its ability to employ significant numbers of people, um, those people are not shamed. You know, they're not on unemployment. They are going through a retraining process. And it's a very natural thing in places like Denmark and Sweden. Yeah. So when I think about the amount of capital that that is going to be written off by SoftBank, mm-hmm. as you said, one in every 10 deals, right? There's estimates that... You know, if if WeWork does declare bankruptcy, which is certainly not out of the realm of possibility because they were desperately in need of cash before the IPO, mm-hmm. right? SoftBank could lose 10 or more billion dollars on that deal alone, okay? Think about what an incredible waste of capital that is yeah, and how much more effectively that could have been allocated. So the auto industry, whether it be the autonomous vehicle industry and the other piece, of course, is um, autonomous trucks yeah. and truck drivers, yeah. Yeah. that's another 10 million jobs on top of the 3 million. So how do we repurpose these people? Right. Yeah. No, and, and you can't do it overnight. It has to be part of a longer term vision, a, part yep. of a longer term plan. There's got, there's definitely has to be policy and there has to be, there have to be systems in place that really allow people uh, and help them transition to something different. Uh, you, you know, it makes me think about uh, just by contrast, right? So if we look at uh, the amount of effort that's been put behind uh, from a policy standpoint, uh, whether it's China or even India, you know, Tata Motors uh, and their shift to have an entirely, uh, an entire electric fleet uh, for a population that, you know, um, actually needs it because of the, the number of people that sit inside of uh, in India or China. We, we just aren't thinking about it the right way. And I think we're being seduced by all of the things that come with fossil fuels. I mean, I think the projections of let's only think about this in 2030 or 2050, that's too late. It's way too late. As as this incredible young Swedish woman, Greta Thunberg, uh, mm-hmm reminded us in such an emphatic way at the UN a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, one of the things we've talked about China at length, you know, during our podcasts. And and the only thing I'll say is, right, so yesterday China celebrated the 70th anniversary of the, the, you know, the, the leadership of China by the Communist Party. And there's no question, you know, China 2025 and AI superiority by 2030, right? There's a lot we can talk about with China, which, you know, probably not going to repeat a lot of the things we've talked about before, but they do have a very unified national policy about how they're going to deploy advanced technologies, whether it be electric vehicles, whether it be AI, right? And America comes out 
a few weeks ago and says, we're going to invest a billion dollars in AI. Now, many people criticize that as being way too little and far too late. But I think an important part of it is, you know, why can't we be setting national policy for AI? Why don't we have some kind of unified vision as to how money will be allocated, right? Public-private partnerships. I just think we need to begin to look at different ways of managing innovation in this country, in this incredibly polarized environment, right? I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican, we're all American citizens. We yeah. all need to work to make a living. Is there some opportunity for leadership from Washington, and maybe I'm completely naive, where we can begin to set national policy and some guidelines as to how we invest in the future and how we prepare workers who are going to be dislocated to be able to benefit from what's happening in the future. Yeah, and I, I think it was, so when, when you just, just that made me think about, uh, you know, some of our other, co other conversations about companies that are doing it, that are pushing the envelope. I mean, you know, for, for, for what it's worth, I mean, the Googles that are investing in STEM programs and, you know, Chromebooks in every, in every classroom or, you know, Apple and a Apple MacBooks in every classroom or yeah. whatever that is, just to try to bridge that divide. Because again, I think a piece of this comes down to education. And it comes down to how do you start to put in place uh, policies uh, and even just the, the the philosophies and the mindset that we continually need to uh, to innovate. We continually need to push the boundary. Uh, it makes me think about uh, you know uh, like the SpaceX is a good example of where we're we're pushing or we were talking about Rivian last week. There are companies out there that absolutely are doing the right thing and pushing hard, but they sort of sit on the fringes because it's not part of mainstream policy to really you know help to drive, uh, I think, that innovation cycle in a way that really, uh, I think, at, and at the pace that we need it to happen. Because if you think about like the auto industry, which we've been talking about here, that's a, that's a massive space where that disruption, the ripple effects, I mean, Uber exists today with drivers. Their future doesn't look forward to having drivers. So what happens to all those folks who've relied on that ecosystem and that economy? Absolutely. Just, you know, this has been, in some ways, uh, if you think about the, the the ethos, Uber could have been this, this amazing company that um, created jobs for everybody and then created continuity after that with programs that think about, well, how do I take these drivers that were once you know, generating revenue for Uber, keeping it going. What do right. we do with those folks? You know, what happens to the drivers post the driverless car? So I think these are some of the things to me that um, are the, there's vast implications for some of the, the, the disruption that has happened. There's positives, obviously, but I think that, you know, there's, there's clearly a gap in terms of how this is being thought of. I love it. So let me pick up on that exactly where I wanted to go with this. So um, while I was at Rutgers last week, uh, speaking to our board, um, one of the questions that came from one of the uh, the senior administrators at Rutgers is, Mike, what what can America do that would be relatively inexpensive? And my answer was, there's so many people to, you know, you said there are a lot of companies on the fringes. There are a lot of people on the fringes, a lot of underrepresented Absolutely. people on the fringes. So yep. Harlem Capital Partners, I've mentioned them very briefly once before. This is a group of four young African-American men. Excited about what they're doing. Who have made it their mission to um, fund a thousand, you know, minority entrepreneurs and female entrepreneurs, right? Mm -hmm. And I had a chance to speak to Jared Tingle last week and they're doing God's work, right? And they're they're pushing forward with an incredible amount of enthusiasm, but we need more Harlem Capital Partners mm -hmm. around the country to bring more people so that when you are an Uber driver, yeah. 
okay, and you wind up deciding, I can't make any money doing this anymore. You have the ability to use your creative and your innovative skills and to come up with an idea to build a company and to find funding. Now, another very interesting venture capital firm is called Unshackled Ventures. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And Unshackled Ventures invests in immigrants who, and they actually provide support in getting them work visas and the like, right? So I think we need to bring more and more Americans, regardless of race, color, creed, whatever, regardless of whether they're the inner city or the burbs, Mm -hmm. into the innovation process so that we're all working on the next breakthrough. I think we need to make it much more inclusive. And the other piece that I think is really critical, right? I mean, and I know that, you know, right now Fang is is getting whipped everywhere, but there's such a concentration of power in capital and their influence on how AI and some of these frontier technologies evolve, mm-hmm. right? And we talked in a, a previous episode about how many great AI professors are being poached by a relatively small number of companies, of companies and yes. what that may do long-term to our ability to kind of build a lot of great AI startups. So it's just like there's income inequality. There's so much innovation capital inequality. Yeah. And I think to me, you know, we need to get back to that point where everybody has the opportunity to work on their dream and get funding for their dream. Because we're we're at a point now where if you're not in a startup that's able to pull down a couple of hundred million or a couple of billion or more in capital, then you're not really playing the game. And it's also very much an us versus them thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, Mike, this has been a fascinating conversation. I think we will take a break now and then come back and and talk about three things. Okay, this is the part where we talk about you. Yes, you. Midway through each show, we take a break from informing listeners about all the amazing things going on in the world of business and technology to personally deliver your message to our innovation-driven, industry-leading listeners. If you'd like to be a part of the show and become a sponsor of the segment, then reach out to Mike and Nikiso at This Is Cool at disruptiveinnovationpodcast.com or this is deep at disruptiveinnovation.info. <laughs> Reach out to us and we'll get you on the show. Thank you very much. We'll be right back. And we're back. So Mike, last three things, last three thoughts. Hit me. Yeah, so I, I think these are... Very much related to the discussion. So first is, right, a a homegrown Boston startup. Mm -hmm. This one started on the Harvard Business School campus, right? We just pushed our our discussion with Patrick Mullane of HBS Online out. That's right. So Rent the Runway, um, remarkably successful company, billion-dollar valuation. Um, They've expanded so dramatically that they've actually hit some growing pains. And what I respect about Jennifer Hyman, founder and CEO still, Mm -hmm. who scaled tremendously, is unlike a lot of her Silicon Valley compatriots, she hit the pause button. And it wasn't growth for growth's sake. It was, you know what, we're having some trouble with logistics and with fulfillment. And we know that, you know, a lot of women who rent our dresses and our gowns do it because they're going to a special occasion. So Mm -hmm. when we let a customer down, we really let them down. Right, right. And so they hit the pause button. They're giving a lot of significant refunds to people who they've let down, although it's not a significant number of their customers. It's a huge mea culpa. Um, And they're completely rethinking and reinventing their entire fulfillment operations, right? And there's something about it that one, it's women, There may be more empathy. 
Um, it's the East Coast. It's Boston, a little bit more conservative, not the West Coast. But to me, that's how you roll. It's refreshing. It's a refreshing thing to see that they're saying, you know what, we're gonna we're gonna hit pause, right? I mean, they've built a unicorn in the right way. It's mm-hmm. taken them ten years. Women love their stuff. They've got a great partnership with Neiman Marcus, right? They're doing all the right things. And so I I was really, um, really taken aback by, wow. And, you know, that's the kind of stuff that doesn't get a lot of notoriety. So it's like a thumbnail in a, in a business article that I read and I wound up doing a little bit more research. But why don't we say more things about that, right? Fantastic. Why is that not? Now, a second thing I think builds on everything that we've talked about, right? So in 2012, we, we passed in Congress something called the Jobs Act. Mm-hmm. And the JOBS Act, you know, and a lot of people in Boston were very deeply involved in testifying before Congress and I think played a very critical role in in having this passed because this was something that was long in coming. And they've extended the JOBS Act that allows for companies that are less than a billion dollars in revenue, emerging growth companies to, quote unquote, test the waters and go out and speak to investors before they filed their reg, you know, their registration sentiments, their mm-hmm. S1, as a way to determine whether or not investors see them in a favorable way. And if not, to give them a chance to rethink, reinvent their business model, reinvent their approach, right? And the reason that this is so important is that whether it be Uber or whether it be Pinterest or Facebook or so many companies, they've gone over a decade without going public. So they've gone over a decade without the discipline of the public markets, mm-hmm. which has allowed them to get to some point where they've gone beyond the pale. That's so great. I, think, so, yeah. so I like the idea. So basically this is this allows companies to, to get a, a gut check every once in a while, make sure that they're still on the right path and know what they can expect once they go out there into the public. That's great. Right. Yeah, and they don't feel like they have to wait until their story is perfect. Because let's be honest, there's no perfect story. Right. There's there's way more hype than there's, you know, there's perfection. And if, you know, you can determine, you know what, the investment community likes our business model now. We don't have to wait another five years. And I think when you are subjected to the, you know, the, let's be honest, the the electron microscope that is the public capital markets, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's pretty hard not to do the right thing. Right. You've got to have independent investors on the board and, and you know, things change. So I think it's a it's a favorable public policy counterbalance to some of the things that we've been talking about. I like it. All right. What's good? What you got for number three? And then the, the third one, which is interesting, because I think with all of the craziness swirling around in Washington, I don't think this got as much coverage as as. I would have expected, but here's Apple, right? Mm-hmm. A company that there's no question their best days are behind them, right? We're at peak iPhone. Um, they don't really have anything truly exciting on their roadmap that that I think anybody can can point to. And they've made what is a rather remarkably surprising decision. They're mm-hmm. getting into the feature film movie business. Going after Netflix. And, but they're doing it in a very different way. So their opening that they see is that because Netflix is reinventing, disrupting the industry, right? Netflix wants to, um, you know, go live with the movie online, on streaming, in theaters the same day. And Apple's saying, no, there's a lot of movie theater owners that don't like that. Hmm. So Apple wants to create feature-length films 
that are going to be exclusively in theaters for some period of time before they stream on Apple's new platform. And again, you know, it's just, it's to me, not where I would like to see Apple go. I just, I think that there's so many more important contributions. That's a curveball. That they can make in the world, right? Given their extraordinary creativity and innovation track record. But to be making movies and going, you know, at it in in a way that just, it seems to be just to, in some ways, tweak Netflix just was a surprise to me. You know, is this really where Apple has evolved to as an innovator? Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, I I wonder a lot about where Apple's next cycle of innovation is going to come from. I actually thought that the the, the whole auto, and we were talking about auto and Apple car and all that stuff. When those rumors started uh, percolating, I thought, wow, that's that that would be an interesting place for them to play. Um, Again, because they've got gobs of money. Right. (laughs) So, you know, most of these massively uh, disruptive ventures, and we've talked about some of them, SpaceX, et cetera, they need massive amounts of capital. And it's companies like Apple that can take those risks. That's right. You know, so that that is a surprising one. Yeah, you're right. Because, you know, when you think about a movie, right, it's, there is no... It's either a hit or a miss. <laughs> That's right. And and the amount of money going into these movies because content has become so precious, um, massive amounts of money that you could literally lose in a weekend, yeah. right? So so it's the antithesis of what I believe is the right approach, which is a lot of experimentation and de-risking. And you're right. I To, to see Apple sitting on $100 billion, whatever ridiculous amount of cash they have, there's so many more things that they could do to benefit the world right now. And this is, I think it's another example of Silicon Valley having in many ways lost its way. Yeah. So anyway, so that's, that's what I've got for, for this week. Fantastic. Well, um, that, that makes this uh, episode fantastic and a wrap. And I think a really great conversation. Uh, I I'm looking forward to some, some follow-ups on some of these topics. They're definitely companies we talked about and, and industries we talked about that I think are doing a lot with disruption and really um, from from the comp- from from the perspective of the podcast, we probably owe them a little bit of uh, of love, and uh, you know we can dive into some of those topics. Yes. Uh, so thank you, everyone. Uh, this has been um, a great conversation. Looking forward to catching up with you all next week. For those listeners enjoying these discussions, we'd like to hear from you. So leave us a comment on your favorite podcast platform. Give us five stars as this helps support the podcast. Now, some of you have been asking us how you can help keep the podcast going. We now have a Patreon page, so visit www.patreon.com slash disruptive innovation. Please visit the page and support the podcast. Your contributions pay for studio time, which is our largest expense. We are not sponsored by any big names, well, not yet. So any support you can provide helps us to keep going. Thank you.